Welcome to the Black Sheep Podcast, brought to you by BBH. I'm your host, writer and performer, Daniela Isaacs. We want to know what it really means to be a black sheep and work out how we can all get a bit better at going against the grain. We're going to be asking some of our favourite black sheep about the rules they've broken to get them where they are today. Black Sheep is a podcast about rules and how to break them. Our black sheep this week is an advertising man. Am I allowed to call you that? You are indeed. Thank you. Such an influential advertising man that if it wasn't for him, this very podcast wouldn't exist. Sir John Hegarty is responsible for many of the cameos and slogans that accompany our everyday lives. His wealth has been built on images and phrases familiar to all of us. Brad Pitt showing us his boxes in the Levi's campaign. The Lynx effect. Keep on walking for Johnny Walker. And perhaps his most famous, which I'm going to ask John to say for us... Vorsprung durch Technik. <laughs> Thank you very much. He's My put pleasure. all of that into the advertising world. He's also refused to advertise cigarettes, nor decided to work within the remit of any political party. As a result, the company he founded, Bartle Bogle Hegarty, now known as BBH, and who are also the producers of this podcast, have become a global known enterprise reaching far further than the confines of the advertising world. Hello, sounds John. wonderful, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds really good, that. <laughs> Some people like to just come for that and then, yeah, and then, then leave. Yeah. I, I think I'll go Can now. Can you stay? <laughs> Quit whilst you're ahead. <laughs> the icon associated with BBH is, of course, the black sheep. Will you tell me a little bit about where that was coined? The black sheep came out of um, uh, the very first piece of creative work we did for Levi's. And we'd won the account and they said, look, you're great, you've got the business and, and we've, you've got to do a poster for us because we're about to launch Black Denim. And um, we've bought all these posters and we haven't got anything to put in them, so you've got to come up with a poster. So I came up with this idea of all these sheep going in one direction and a black sheep going in the opposite direction. And I just said Black Levi's. And then Barbara Noakes, the writer I work with, said, um, and I think we should say when the world zigs, zag. And so we presented this to Levi's, and so this is it. It's all about black. And they looked at it, and they said, Bo, where are the picture of the jeans? And we said, well, people know what a pair of jeans is like. I just want to emphasise black mm-hmm. and how beneficial black is and what it's about and why you should buy a pair of black Levi's as opposed to a pair of blue, which most people have. And they've hummed and hawed, and they thought, oh, God, we've hired these lunatics, and they've done the first piece of credit work for us, and... There's not even a picture of the bloody jeans in here. What are we going to do? Oh, my God, it's awful. And, oh, no, have we made a huge mistake? And we went backwards and forwards. And eventually the copy date is approaching. And in the end, they just had to say, OK, fine. <laughs> and they ran the poster. And then um, it was very, very, very successful and people commented on it. And um, the uh, great-great-grandson of Levi's in San Francisco, who was still... Uh, running the company, saw it. What year was this, by the way? This was 1982. Mm -hmm. And he had it framed and put in his office. And he (laughs) said, this is what this company's all about. Wow. And so Levi's, UK, but they were, we were Northern Europe, we were dealing with Northern Europe there, gave me a black sheep (laughs) as a thank you for being persistent and selling this. So anyway, so that's where the the poster (laughs) came from. And then, so Ripple Dissolve 
We're moving into Kingley Street. This is now 1995, so do the maths, 1982 with the post, and 1995. We're moving into Kingley Street, and we're having, Nigel and I, it's, it was late one evening, we're having a meeting with the architect who was doing the offices. And I said to the architect, now, you know, outside I want a great big flag or something up saying BBH. You know, I could see it going up. He said, no, no, no. Planning, planning rules, you can't do it, you can't put it up. I said, why is that? He said, no, sorry, you can't do it. I said, no. He said, but you've got a logo. We could put your logo up. And Nigel and I but said, no, we haven't got a logo. We're an advertising agency. We don't have logos. <laughs> got a stupid thing you say. I mean, we sort of, the meeting ended, and, and Nigel and I walked out, and then we had this big staircase going down. I always remember it, and it was like 6.30 at night. We and we suddenly turned to each other and said, we do have a logo. We keep talking about the black sheep. Mm. We say, yeah, that's our logo, isn't it? Right, that's it. Uh, get the architect back up. Hey, we've got a logo. It's called the black sheep. Put it up outside. And that's how it came about. And how did you come up with it? What, what, like, was it well, at it was three just... in the morning you woke up and thought? And uh, <laughs> You often do, actually. But often three o'clock in the morning, when you look at it at nine o'clock the next morning, it's usually rubbish. <laughs> no, it, it's just, again, I'd never, I didn't, I don't, when I create something, I don't want to create a piece of advertising i want to pay create a piece of a, a piece of work that has cultural importance i was trying to say something about not just buy a pair of black levi's because they're different from blue but because they make a statement mm. they're about being different and that's part of what you've got to buy into if you're going to buy black levi's they're going to be different from blue why is that why is that good because when the world sees you zag so i was you're always trying to elevate the message you're not just putting a piece of advertising out there, buy this. You're trying to make it a part of culture in some way or another. You're trying to make your message give it an importance that goes beyond just selling something. And that's what we were doing with Black Levi's. With that in mind, I'd like to start us off by asking, do you think of yourself as a black sheep? Do you know, I don't think I do, funny enough. Mm. I don't think... Because I, I think if you're conscious of being a black sheep. You're not really being a black sheep, are you? Mm. Um, it's I just have this aversion to doing things like everybody else. I, I sort of sometimes call it, I have a kind of creative Tourette's <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of want to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Yeah. And uh, I, I can't help myself sometimes. And I, and I sort of think of myself in those terms. So to consciously go out and be a black sheep, I think is not the way to be a black sheep. And what do you think it means to be a black sheep? Well, I think what you're trying to say is you're trying to say to people, just don't follow the crowd. Yeah. Try and craft your own path. Try and go in your own direction. Try and do things your way. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to your own rhythms, if you listen to what, is going on inside your head, you probably will do something different because you will say, well, I've seen all of that. I'd like to try something different. And that's really what a black sheep is trying to do and therefore stand out because that's the other purpose of it, is to stand out, be mm -hmm. noticed. John, please can you kick us off by telling me the first rule that you have broken? Well, the first rule is follow the money. With that in mind, you have built a career within the advertising world. Now, obviously, within advertising, the end goal is to have a commercial value, to have capital. Do you think it is still possible to be regarded as a, as a black sheep when that is always going to be your end goal? Well, you know, I always say money's a tool, not a philosophy. 
Uh, it's a tool to get things done. The trouble is people elevate it to a philosophy and therefore they come uh, incredibly unstuck. But, you know, it allows you to do things. And I think you've got to ensure that you're making the money to do what you need to do, however much that is, whatever that is. It might be to run a coffee store in some little local village. That's fine. That's great. Nothing wrong with that. But I think creative careers collapse because people follow the money. Have you ever been inclined to follow the money? Well, I think you're always tempted, aren't you? It's like everything in life. I mean, it's 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 uh, wonderful to do that. But I, I think if you're following a creative career, it's a very, very difficult path to follow. I mean, most, most creative careers last about 10 years. Mm -hmm. You do your great work in 10 years, and then what do you do? Now, if you're an industry like music, so if you're, you know, like Mick Jagger, you can you know, write some great music and you can spend the rest of your life going around the world singing it. You know, you can get up and sing Jumping Jack Flash and 10,000, 20,000 people turn up and pay tickets to hear you sing it. If you're doing, if you're working in advertising or perhaps you're in fashion, if you're in uh, an industry where you have to come in every day and have a new idea mm. and it can't be like yesterday's idea, then how do you turn a 10-year career into a 15-year, 20-year, 30-year career. That's the big task any creative person who is not in an industry where they can go on repeating what they've done mm -hmm. uh, has to answer. And that is where the first thing is don't chase the money, chase the opportunity. And you see creative careers kind of you know, uh, crash and burn because somebody has been tempted by the cash, tempted to go somewhere that doesn't really invest back into their career, mm -hmm. back into their creativity. So you've constantly, if you're following a creative path, you've constantly got to reinvest back into your career, into your ability to do great work. But when you're working with brands who, and I'm not in the advertising world, but I'm assuming when you're working with brands that are, asking you to create a campaign or projects for them, surely you have to please them in order to get the money. So how how no, strong can one be within that kind of power dynamic? Well, of course, what you're trying to do is sell them something that is effective. Yeah. That's what you're trying to do. I'm not trying to please them. Yeah. I, never, I never wanted to please my clients. Mm -hmm. I wanted to please the audience that was trying to buy their product or they were trying to appease, appease or they were trying to appeal to. The idea that I was trying to please the client, it, for me, it was irrelevant. I mean, I quite liked it if they liked the advertising, but they were my target audience, and I had to try and get them to understand that. I'm not here to please you. Mm -mm. I'm here to please those people out there. Yeah. Because you might be completely wrong. Yeah. Uh, might be something you might like to think about. Yeah. You know, they would look at you in sort of slight shock. So you're, you're doing things which please yourself. Now, I always say to creative people, look, you're doing a piece of work. Do you love it? Mm. And if you love it, at least you know one person in the world loves this. And you can only do things which you love. I can't... You know, the idea that I can stand in the shoes of someone in Bradford and pretend I understand people in Bradford... It's bollocks. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand people in Bradford. What I do understand is what is engaging, what is in entertaining, what is involving. And I put myself into that position. I say, would I love this? Would I think this is great? Now, this to a lot of people, this is going to come, what? What is he saying? But, you know, if you think about an artist, you know, Matisse didn't sort of 
paint a picture and go, ooh, I've done a bit of research and I think people like a lot of blue, so I'm going to put a lot of blue into this. Mm. He said, I love this mm. and I'm going to do this. And he was successful. Now, you've either got that or you haven't. I can't... I can't pretend that I understand somebody in Bradford because is that the same as somebody in Dundee? Or is that the same as, I don't know, somebody in Mumbai because I'm doing a global campaign? How do I, how do I unify all of these different opinions? I unify it. I unify them by doing something which I think is great. Mm -hmm. And if I think it's great and I'm good at it, then hopefully it will succeed. And at what point do you cross-check or check in with other well, people? Well, of course you're checking in all the time. Of course you aren't arrogant. You aren't sitting there as somebody saying, I don't give a shit what anybody else thinks. But, you are, but you've got to trust your own judgment. You've got to trust what you're doing. That's the only way you can create. And when you look back over the years that you've been in advertising, which, as you say, is far longer than the Far average. too long, far too long. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, well, I'm, I'm no. sort of not really in it anymore, but, you know. <laughs> um, what's the, your um, project that you are most proud of that you look back and think, well, I wasn't chasing the money, but as a consequence, it, it did very well? Well, you know, I would say there have been quite a lot. Well, I always say the one I, that I really loved was we were working with... Um, uh, a snack company called Phileas Fogg. And um, they made these, they were in the 80s, they were hugely successful when bar snacks became quite a sort of uh, a feature. And uh, they created all these snacks from around the world. So California corn chips, tortilla chips, you know. And the, 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 the tendency in advertising would be to pretend they came from California or the tortilla chips came from Mexico. And you see it on ads today, you know, where a beer pretends it's German, but it has to put in the top right-hand corner of the screen, made, brewed in the UK. And we said, well, instead of doing that, why don't we just tell people the truth mm. that we're made up in Medemsley Road, Consett, County Durham, which is the most, you know, sort of dullest place in the world you could possibly think of. You know, it was an old steel town and they were there, hardly glamorous. Mm. And we said, no, we'll turn that into something. And we did. And we turned that into a campaign and we laughed at this whole thing of pretending we were from somewhere else. And when United Biscuits bought the company yeah. uh, to keep the advertising running, they had to keep the factory open. Oh, wow. So we kept those people's jobs. Yeah. Now, for how long, I don't know. But So that I was, you know, I thought that was really good. I like that. Will you throw us into our, your second one? So the second rule that you have broken. Is, well, a lot of people say, you know, you should have a five-year plan. You can, you know, governments talk about the five-year plan. Communist states, for some reason, have the five-year plan. Don't they? I don't know why they do. I mean, and, and I've always thought that's a nonsense. You know, I always say to people, I don't have a five-year plan. I have a five-minute plan. Mm -hmm. And I have a little mantra which I, I really believe in, which is do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. And if you spend your life planning it, you won't be open to the things that might happen to you. You won't be aware of what you could do because you've suddenly done something interesting over here. That's opened a door over there. And you'll be going, oh, no, I can't do that because my five-year plan says I've got to do this. Mm. So this idea of planning your life like that is is exceedingly tedious. Um, why would you ever want to do that? Where do you think that came from? Well, I just think it's that sort of predictable mind. We We, we live in a world where... People want certainty. Mm. You know, they want a certainty. So somebody said, oh, 
plan your life out, make sure you're doing that. If you're not doing this by your early 20s, if you're not doing that by the time you're 30, but, you know, what a load of rubbish. I mean, it's just, you know, it just breeds failure in people because suddenly they go, oh, I haven't yeah. achieved that, I haven't done this, I haven't... And then they feel a failure. No, you're not. It just might be happening at a, a different time. It might be happening in a different way. It's and... very lovely to hear as I approach 30. <laughs> well, it's true. Um, there, there's... Uh, God, no, I've forgotten his name. He played the lead part in the um, the Alan Bennett film, The Madness of King George, Nigel Hawthorne. Nigel Hawthorne. Mm. All right, Nigel Hawthorne. There's a great story. Great story, I'm saying this. Nigel Hawthorne, they made it into a movie. He played it on the stage. And when it it was to be made into a movie, the, the um, Hollywood wanted a big-name actor. Alan Bennett said no. Nigel Hawthorne played it on stage. He played it brilliantly. I want him in the part. They said, no, 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 no. And he said, well, you're not making the film then. They relented. Nigel Hawthorne played the part. Nigel Hawthorne, at the age of 65, mm -hmm. gets an Oscar. Yeah. Now, there you are. Just at the moment he was retiring, he gets an Oscar. Yeah. So you go, well... Was that, you know... It wasn't in his five-year plan. It wasn't in the five-year plan, <laughs> was it? You know, and I think it's a lovely story. Or I, I, I do love, although, of course... You know, it's not quite the same. But uh, when people talk to me about when when, do you, when have you made it or anything like that, you kind of think um, Frank Lloyd Wright, who was the world's greatest architect in my view, mm. he died at the age of 90. He died six months before the Guggenheim in New York. His greatest, wow. greatest piece of work was opened. Yeah. Now, if he'd decided to retire at 85, which you'd have thought, well, that's not unreasonable, 85... We wouldn't have the good yeah. behind. So, you know, this idea of, you know, you can work it all out, you can decide when it's going to be is a nonsense. Keep doing interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. That's the only mantra you should follow. So if we zoom into your own life, um, <clears throat> so you, you say you've never had a five-year plan. No, but you started off at art school, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. What when was we... your, uh, well, initial plan then? Oh, I wanted to be the next Picasso. Did but, you? You know, yeah, of course. Well, God, you know, all that kind of, you know, those women around him and great paintings. Who, who would not want to be Picasso? <laughs> I mean, come on. However, mm. I sort of, you know, uh, I don't think my work was quite as as good as his, so therefore I had to think about plan B. And what was that? And plan B was I loved ideas, and I was at a wonderful teacher who said to me, John, you love ideas, why don't you go and do graphic design, which mm -hmm. I then went and did at the London College of Printing, now called the London College of Communication. But I still loved ideas. I loved sort of starting with a blank page. And then whilst I was at the LCP, I met another lecturer who showed me the great work coming out of New York in advertising terms, the Volkswagen work, Avis, things like that. And it was brilliant. I thought it was, it was work that was intelligent, smart, witty, clever, but inclusive. That was the other great thing about it. And I thought, this is what I want to do. And so whilst I was at the LCP, I developed a portfolio to go into advertising. And then I, well, I got a job at uh, Benton and Bowles. Oh, is this and the story was, when you get when you were a true black sheep? I was a true black sheep because well, I had a great a friend of mine said to me, I was I was leaving college and I said I'd been offered two jobs, and he said, um, I said one of them is a young Rubicon and it's playing double what the other one is offering called Benton and Bowles, and I said I'm not sure which one to go and a friend of mine said well you know John, Benton and Bowles has just got this great uh, new 
head of art coming over from New York. I think that will be really interesting. I'd be interesting to work with him. And so I thought, OK, I'll do that, even though it was paying half. And I got to Benson & Bowles and I was there for about a week. And the, the creative director said to me, oh, I've just found a writer for you to work with. And I went, oh, that's great, because, you know, I was an art director of writer there. And he, I said, so what's his name? And he said, Charles Saatchi. Hmm. And I went, oh, God, he's Italian. He lives at home with mum and he can't spell. This is brilliant. This is my writer. Well, I was right on two fronts. <laughs> he did live at home at mum and he wasn't very good at spelling, but he wasn't <laughs> Italian. Yeah. And I got to, so I got to work with Charlie. Wow. And it was a brilliant... For both of us, in a way, it was a great experience. I mean, he talks about it, I talk about it. Uh, but I wouldn't have done that. Had I gone, have I taken the money? Yeah. I'd have gone to Weinart. Would that have happened? Would that door have opened? Would that beginning to hopefully a long-term career have occurred? It wouldn't have done. And after meeting him, did you have a plan? What was No. Plan? No, I, I, the plan was to do great work. OK. And so just to have, just do work that we were really proud of. And uh, so that's what we did. And then he went off with somebody else and to, to College of St Pierce. I then got fired from... From him? From Benson and Bowles. No, from Benson and oh, Bowles. Okay, I got yeah. fired because I was a pain in the ass. you know. Well, I was because... You were a black sheep. I was a black sheep and I knew what I was saying was right and they were wrong. Uh, and I was right, of course, but, mm. you know, <laughs> um, but they didn't want to hear that. So... Um, you, did you then go on to work for... Then I then... Uh, through another connection, I then ended up working with Charlie again. And when he started his agency, he asked me to go and join him. And what made you leave and go and set up on your own? Well, it was... It, it, in a way, I never... We never really thought about it. We were... You know, I then left Charlie and went to TBWA... Um, to set up the London office of an agency called TBWA. It was the first European agency, in a way. And that was very exciting, very difficult, and that's where I met John Bartle and Nigel Bogle. We were all Great recruited science. to kind of uh, work together there. We then started doing some terrific work. It was, it was difficult getting TBWA going, but we got that going. And then... Um, it was really, I mean, I was never planning to open an agency. And I thought, oh, God, not again. I'd, the start of TBWA, the start of uh, Saatchi and Saatchi. Mm. It's hard work, mm. you know, it's hard work. And then, you know, there was a sort of feeling. And, and Nigel said one day, you know, we're not being valued in the right way here. We've got to think about doing something for ourselves. And, and what suddenly, did that mean? Well, it was just in the kind of work we wanted to do, the way we were... Uh, uh, being rewarded, and I don't mean just in terms of money, in terms of just, you know, uh, being a part of the company. And uh, we felt we could do it ourselves. And uh, the again, the opportunity to do something for one's own career suddenly opened up and we decided to set BBH up back in 1982. So it didn't come out of, and then I want to go on yeah. to open it. I didn't at all. I mean, I was, I was, you know, in some ways, I quite liked what we were doing. It was really being successful. We were doing great work. We were being awarded at Cannes. We were being, we were Campaign Magazine's first agency of the year. And it mm. was kind of like, wow, it's all going well. Let's leave. Yeah. Let's leave. <laughs> and in 1982, when you set up BBH, how did you want it to kind of be a disruptor, perhaps, to other advertising agencies that were apparent at the time? Well, again, you know, I, it sounds weird, this. I, 
I think we wanted it to be different. We didn't want to be like everybody else. But I didn't, you know, you don't think I'm going to be different. Mm. You think about I'm going to produce, hopefully, the work I genuinely love. You know, so you go back to a question. All right, here's the question. Define creativity. All right, now, this is a big question. It's a big, you know, what is creativity? Well, you know, somebody once said to me, you know, uh, Music is the greatest of all art forms. And I said, I think it's the second greatest of all art forms. I think life is the greatest of all art forms. Mm. So in other words, we're all creative. Mm -hmm. And that's what separates us out from the animal kingdom. You know, they don't get up in the morning. A dog doesn't get up in the morning and say, do you know, I really think I need to get my hair done or something like that. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't think like that. We do. Yeah. We are creative. Therefore, I define creativity as an expression of self. When you are expressing yourself, you are being creative. The way you do it, how you do it, the form you put it in, what shape it is. So everything about it is an expression of self. Therefore, when you're thinking about your agency and thinking about the work you're doing, you're expressing yourself. Mm -hmm. Even though it's commissioned by someone else, you're still expressing what you believe. This is how I believe we should do an ad. This is how I believe we should write a poster. This is how I believe we should... So you're expressing your ideas. And when you do that, when you allow yourself to come through, it is different from other people because you're not the same as other people. So that difference comes from your fundamental beliefs that mm. you've got to allow express themselves. Absolutely. And as those years have gone on while you were within BBH, how did you manage to keep up with the trends? You don't keep up with the trend. You have ideas that, that frighten you. Mm -hmm. And in that way, you go, this is daring. This is different. I like that. That could be, oh, that's exciting. But if I try to follow a trend, by the time I followed a trend, it would have been over. Mm -hmm. So you don't, you don't, you just do exciting things. I guess, though, it also sounds like the collaboration is a huge part of that. Because well, yeah, of course. I mean, you collaborate around uh, 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 when you're making an idea. But ultimately, ideas come out of one person's mind. They come out of lots of influences that have been fed into you and conversations, and then eventually, bang, an idea comes out. Mm. Um, you know, collaboration is an interesting word. It's also a dangerous word. Why? Well, because it implies the important thing is to collaborate. No, it isn't. The important thing is to have a great idea. But you've just spoken about the importance of having like a pair. You know, you you of course paired up with well, Sarchi at the time. So you do, but that's that's as much as a collaboration gets because you're 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 bouncing ideas off each other. Put another person in there and it just gets complicated. Too many cooks. Too many cooks. You know, we know that phrase. And and but you know, so it's very. You know, in lots of fields of creativity, you often have pairs in writing, Lennon and McCartney, Rogers and Hammerstein. You know, a lot of, lot of creative companies often have a pair that has a different discipline that they bring to the kind of table. So in advertising, you have a writer and an art director working together. So a writer thinks in kind of narrative form. An art director thinks in visual form. Mm. And so you put these two disciplines together and they spark off each other. That's the idea of it. But you're trying to create a spark. Yeah. You put a third person in there and it just gets complicated. So that's why you put two in there. But I'm, you know, I, I, when I say collaboration is dangerous, I mean, I think it's important. But you're elevating a process into a philosophy. 
Mm-hmm. Collaboration's a process. I, I Absolutely. Collaborate, you know, because I'm going to work with a director or I'm going to work with a stylist or I'm going to work with a, someone to help me make this idea. And then I collaborate with them. But unless they've got an idea, what the hell are they going to do? Yeah. And it's that idea that matters. It's that idea that is paramount in everything that we do. Mm-hmm. And that comes out of the, out of somebody's brain, out of their mind, out mm. of their imagination, out of whatever it might be. Of course, they're fed lots of different influences, but that's what's important. And I think that's why maybe creativity isn't as good today as it has been. Because, because we become obsessed with the process, not with allowing a lunatic loose and just say, come up with an idea. You know, it's, we had more lunatics in our industry 20, 30 years ago who just, you know, were mavericks. I guess that brings us back, actually, to kind of not having a five-year plan. If we look at the years that you've been involved within advertising, how much do you think it's changed and where is it? how is it changing now? Have you kind of, if you're navigating that landscape, where do you think it's going? Well, I think it, it, the first thing to say, it's always it's always changing. You know, it's never a fixed industry because it's a creative industry. It's 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 responding. It's responding to what's on, what's going on out there. I think um, what you know, when I came into the industry, creativity wasn't seen as fundamental. Mm-hmm. It was like one of the disciplines that existed in an agency, and people talked about market research. They talked about client service, and we got a bit of creativity over here. And gradually, they realised as we lived in a more and more competitive world where more brands, more, more, more things trying to compete for people's time, you needed something to capture people's imagination. And that's what creativity does. That's what it's about. Mm-hmm. I want to capture your imagination. So we saw in the 70s and into the 80s and into the 90s this rise of creativity in our industry. Then you've seen the rise of technology. Mm-hmm. Now, there was always technology there. We forget television is technology. You know, it's amazing. You get this box in your living room and it you get a picture on it and, it's a fan, and it entertains you. It's amazing. But So technology has always been around, but we've got had this sort of surge of technology with digital technology that's disrupting so many different things that nobody really knows quite how to respond to it. So in a sense, what we've found is we've become overawed by the technology and we don't know how to respond to it. What do we do with it? How do we make it work for us? And so we've developed a form of advertising which is interruption, mm-hmm. um, which is stalking. I almost call it stalking now is a, is a strategy. As a brand, are you a stalker brand? You mm-hmm. stalk your consumer. You stalk the people you're trying to sell to. Now, I personally think that's a very dangerous place to be. Um, and people, that's why there is a definite um, kind of feeling of disillusionment with advertising is stalking me. I don't yeah. want it to stalk me. When we said it should be entertaining you, people liked it. They yeah. like that. But we've lost that. And I think that's what we've got to regain, that sense of you're there to engage and entertain and therefore hopefully sell somebody something. I guess because we are constantly thrown like a endless information these days, it's almost impossible for something to kind of penetrate right through that we take seriously or that we don't think is some form of kind of harassment on us because we've got our phones constantly at the end of our hands so it's just an endless marketing device of course and I, and and i think that people are rejecting that yeah and, and quite rightly so too I, I i do but you know if i 
if I'm in a mood, if I go to the cinema, I read a journal or I read a newspaper, I read whatever you read or I watch TV and it's a great ad, I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I enjoy the sense of entertainment, of engagement. I think that's great. I I wonder whether, you know, hearing your knowledge, it makes me think we could be so much more disruptive in the way that we are responding to the way the world is right now, which is exactly like you said – what advertising can do. Yeah. So it feels like we haven't yet gone far enough. Well, I think, you know, I've always, I've always think, uh, you know, the greatest brands are the brands that told the truth. Yeah. And actually, believe it or not, the greatest strategy you can execute in advertising is tell the truth. Yeah. But just make it interesting. Mm. Uh, the truth is great because people respect it. Um, it builds long-term relationships and they admire you for it. You know, like I said, with that campaign we did for Phileas Fogg, we, instead of lying, pretending we were coming from California or India or whatever it might have been, we just said, no, we made him Medemsey Road, yeah. Concert County, yeah. Durham. And it captured people's imagination. And I think this idea that advertising's job is to mask the truth in some way is one of the great nonsenses. Advertising's job is to find the truth of a brand and express that truth in a way which captures people's imagination. That's its task. And that's what builds long-term relationships. And I think especially today when we're living in a time when it's difficult to get the truth. You know, we have a, without being political, we have a prime minister who has been found to lie, Mm -hmm. lie to the Queen. That's fact. 11 (laughs) high court, you know, judges, whatever they were, Supreme Court judges said, you lied, you know, but he's still there. Mm. And and it's not yeah, just him. Yeah, we're craving truth. We're craving the truth. Yeah. We need the truth. Society can only move forward when it finds the truth. Mm-hmm. Then you can make a decision. Then I want to do that to make sure this happens. But you can only do that if you're if you're in in command of the truth in some shape or form. And I think great brands are about finding that truth, but they've forgotten that as well. We need to uh, send a wake-up call to remind everyone. We do indeed. Uh, John, will you throw us into your third and final rule that you have broken, please? Well, this idea that eventually you retire. I mean, I think um, that is one of those words I dislike intensely. Um, it kind of means you're basically, um, uh, you know, pulling the plug and you're waiting to die. Mm. <laughs> and that's a kind of nonsense. And you've got to remember that retirement is a concept of the kind of industrial age. I mean, it was in- invented for the industrial era when, you know, people were put in factories and they would work so appallingly that by the time they were 65, they were almost ready to die. And suddenly, you know... Uh, uh, social policy was developed to sort of give them a couple of years off before they did. How nice, you know. And so, you know, but we've taken that concept forward into now what is the information age. Mm-hmm. And and it's a nonsense. Why retire? You've got all that knowledge. You've got all that thing. Go and do something you enjoy doing, but don't retire. Retire is where people go and, you know, uh, uh, end their life far too soon. And if you've attained all this knowledge and all this experience, then go and do something great. Make sure you're enjoying it. And if you're doing something you enjoy, well, then why retire? You know, yeah. as I said, Frank Lloyd Wright didn't retire, and he, he he died, you know, six months before his greatest building was opened. Absolutely, I guess it, you know, it comes from, from a place of privilege. There are there are many people that probably just, I mean, my own dad despises 
I'm scared now he's listening or anyone that he works <laughs> with, but he despises his job. So well, he that, can't wait course. to retire, yeah. but he doesn't really have a choice. In Well, you might argue that he does. But well, he does. It's a big you know, risk when you're trying to survive. Yeah, no, of course. And, I, and I'm not for a, minute, for a minute saying that there, there aren't people out there who, who love everything they do. They mm. don't. But the answer is go and find something you do love doing Absolutely. and go and do that. Yeah. And put your heart and soul into that. Stay interesting. You know, do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. If you're basically retired, then that's it. The mind shuts down, the body shuts down and you die. Mm. With that in mind, um, where did you decide to go after leaving BBH? Was it last year? Uh, well, I've, I've sort of, it's last year, last year that we, Nigel and I eventually sort of uh, finally left. But we were on sort of, you know, I was, I was just doing one day a month. For a long time. But I set up the Garage Soho, which mm-hmm. is an early stage investment company, helping young businesses get up off the ground. So what we do is we help, uh, we advise them, we get them finance, we get their business ideas up off the ground. And what we say to them is, we actually we say, don't start a business, build a brand, mm-hmm. because that's where value will reside. Understand that whatever idea you've got in business, somebody will copy it, somebody will copy the technology, they'll do all those things. So but what they can't do is they can't copy the brand. You know, Anybody can make a sparkling brown sugar drink, mm-hmm. but they can't call it Coca-Cola. Yeah. Yeah, and you've invested in companies such as NotOnTheHighStreet.com, which I actually love. I get every wedding present uh, from there. Uh, ARC, Merge Market, and LastMinute.com. How do you choose who to invest in? Are you looking only Well, I didn't do those. That was, that was Tom, my partner, who did those. I'll take the credit. I'll no, take joking. the credit, right, OK. <laughs> well, you um, kind of... It's a, it's a number of things. It's do you think the people are interesting? Do you think they have the kind of um, ability to drive the business? Um, do you like the business idea? I mean, I talk about a business idea. Is it an idea that you think? Is it um, scalable? Is it monetizable? It's amazing how many people come to you with an idea and you think, well, how are you going to make money out of that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I haven't thought about that. Money is there, then important because it lubricates everything else. Um, and I quite like the idea of is it frictionless? Mm-hmm. Is the idea, you know, in other words, is it going to make life easy? Okay. Is it going to be, you know, so I, I think there's a sort of, as we're living in a world where time is pressured, time is increasingly scarcer and scarcer, an idea that makes things easier mm. is going to be easier to get traction than an idea that isn't. I mean, you know, I think Steve Jobs understood this when he developed the operating system for the iPhone. I want to be dead easy. Mm. You know, I want you to be able to get into it fast. And it's amazing how you say to somebody sometimes, this is very difficult to understand. Uh, can you not make it easier? And I think that's very, very important. So an idea that's frictionless, that makes stuff easy. That sounds great. So that's how you're filling your days because you don't want to retire. However, I'm, I, I guess someone who's had such a interesting and it sounds like just jam-packed career, how do you then have any time for personal life? If in terms of balancing things outside of work, well, well, my work is personal as well as 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 kind of public, and um, you know, I I combine them both in a way, so that you don't, you know, you don't. I mean, you don't say to David Hockney, "How do you balance your, you know, your your." Business life and your personal life. No, you, because his like that's his life. My but I might life say is, to him, "How how do you spend time with your family alongside that?" Oh yeah, that? well I love spending time with my family because they're wonderful and I adore them. And uh, 
uh, my lovely wife, Philippa. I spend time with her. She was in the business, so we talk about ideas. We talk about things that you're doing. Then you go and see... You're looking for stimulation all the mm-hmm. time. So then you go and see... Go to an art gallery. You go to the theatre. You go to the cinema. Mm-hmm. You go and see things which are interesting. All of those all of those things are fundamentally important, but you're combining them into your life. Is there never a desire, and maybe I'm projecting my own anxieties, but is there ever a desire to switch off from that? Well, you... I, I find switching off. You know, you, you sort of... You can meditate, mm. which is lovely. And you I, do that. I can... I don't purposely meditate. I, I walk everywhere if I possibly can. I find that very meditative. Mm. I find walking a great way of just, you know, not... You know, worrying about stuff and mm. you don't have to worry about getting a train, you don't have to worry about getting a bus or what time will I be there? You know exactly what time you're going to be there. So you can just think. Don't put headphones on. Don't listen to a piece of music. You're cutting yourself off. Apart from if you're listening to this podcast. Unless you're listening to this right podcast, ear, which is please. fundamentally important to get them <laughs> on. But, you know, people cut themselves off. I see people walking around yeah. looking at their phones with the headphones on. They're cutting themselves off. Yeah. And you can't do that. I mean, I only ask that. I also am lucky enough to follow and my passion and my passion is my job but I still find it very important to take time just away from that and sometimes it is very helpful to see it as a job so that's why I'm kind of interested in those blurred boundaries really yeah you do I mean I think the great thing that advertising gives you is you're in an industry where you know one minute you're in fashion, the next minute you're in automotive, the next minute you're in hospitality, Mm. the next minute you're in the food industry, and you're constantly absorbing all these different industries. So you kind of have this very broad spectrum of knowledge and understanding and and realising how they actually all interplay in some shape or form. So, you know, that's the great gift that advertising's given you. This 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 breadth of knowledge, this breadth of understanding, as opposed to and you you you, you do understand it when you meet somebody who is, you know, I've got a cousin who's a trauma surgeon and and he loves talking about advertising, mm. um, uh, and he doesn't want to talk about being a trauma surgeon. Yeah, <laughs> and he's particularly good at it. But you know, you sort of realise that he's he's fascinated in that broader world. And when you're doing that, you're doing this. And how do you use that influence mm. in that influence? And you can see how it's a wonderful industry to work in, mm. where it gives you this broad perspective. But if you can't do that, then seek it. Seek, you know, reading stuff. Read everything you possibly can. I mean, I always say to people, you know, I read both the Financial Times and The Economist. Now, why do I read the Financial Times? I understand about 5% that's in it. <laughs> yeah, it's more but than But actually, me. I'm reading something that most other creative people aren't reading. Yeah. So I kind of read it and I think, this is an interesting article. It's given me a point of view here that I might be able to use in my career in some way or another. So that's the important thing. Mm. You know, keep it broad. And finally, John, please can you tell me the one rule that you would never break? And that is to ignore rules. Sounds like a cop-out. It is. <laughs> but I, I, I just think as soon as you start to have rules, you start to become bound in by something and then you lose perspective. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think you have to stand back from him and say there are no rules. There are experiences, which I use all the time. But if there were rules, it, it would say we've worked it out and we haven't worked it out. And the great 
creative breakthroughs are made by people. The great breakthroughs are made by people who don't respect the rules. Mm. Who go, I'm going to disregard the rule. I'm going to do something completely different. And through that, you find you've created something wonderful. But it's only by ignoring the rules that you you will actually, in a way, break through and do something truly, truly different. I hear that. Do you ever find a sense of ease from having an element of structure, like some rules? Well, of course, there's a, there's, there are, I, I go back to, I don't use the word rules, I use the word experiences. So, for instance, I'll give you something. When I, when I was writing TV commercials, all right, you were writing, I never wanted to be in advertising. Mm-hmm. I never actually wanted to be in advertising. I was in advertising, but I never, that's just what, so I wrote TV commercials that were more like little films mm-hmm. because that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to engage and entertain. So one of the things I always used to do was, you know, you'd, you'd write a script and you'd say, open on. And then what somebody would do, one and a half seconds later, cut to. Instead of that, I'd say, no, hold the open on for five seconds. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I put you in a different place. And that, for me, was a kind of trick, if you like, that I employed, not a trick. It was a sort of, as an experience, I realised, because everybody would go, opening shot, second and a half later, cut two. Mm -hmm. And you go, no, hold it for five seconds. Mm. And then all of a sudden, I'm beginning, oh, this is different, and therefore you're into something that's unlike anything else. So that was a kind of, I suppose you could argue, a rule, but I looked at that as an experience, because that's what I experienced when I went to the cinema, opening shot. And it would be, wow, look mm. at that, I'm here now. Ooh. And that's what I was trying. I was trying to create that feeling when I was writing things. OK, so you're a convention breaker in, in work. Personal life, do you have any rules? Um, any rules? I can't, you know, it's a kind of slightly mad question, isn't it? Do you have rules? <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm yeah, asking it. You know, yeah, of course you do. I mean, you know, there are things you do which is brush your teeth every day and you know <laughs> you know all the yeah of course but i mean that, that they aren't you know they're they're sort of habits rather than rules i'm really pushing for you to be a rule follower but you yeah, won't you do right. it no i'm not going to do it, I don't do it. <laughs> uh, john thank you so much you've been an incredibly inspiring black sheep and you've definitely changed the world uh, changed change the world yes but also <laughs> changed the well, advertising world for sure and thank you for enabling us really to have this podcast daniela thank you lovely talking to you 